Good evening. I'm Fiona Mountford, theatre critic of the Evening Standard, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you here for this platform about the intriguing new play, Common. My guest tonight will be well known to anyone with even a passing interest in the fortunes of British theatre, and particularly British new writing, in the last decade or so. DC Moore, Dave, is an award-winning writer whose work has played to great acclaim at Northampton, the Royal Court, and here at the National. Jeremy Herron, artistic director of Headlong, was behind two of the very finest productions of last year, the West End transfers of People, Places and Things, and James Graham's towering modern classic, This House. A certain critic from The Standard actually gave Jeremy a combined total of 10 stars for those two productions. <laughs> it's a real treat to have them both with us tonight, so welcome. Thank you. So let's jump right in and start with the big picture. What does Common, which is about early 19th century land enclosures, have to say to us here now in London in 2017? Uh, I think, unfortunately, that's um, events of the last week have made that relatively clear. Yes. Um, so I think uh, the big thing that drew me into this period is this is a, this is a time when sort of uh, contemporary capitalism is just ramping itself up. So 1809, so London at this point, um, it's before railways, it's before the sort of South London was still pretty much farmland. Right. But um, the beginning of a time when capitalism was, capitalism was really ramping up. And this is the same time that um, the, old, the old ways of uh, using the land, which had been sort of, they're so old that the origins of it are sort of lost to the mists of time, which was that you had, uh, communal uh, communal use of the land, communal use of tools, everyone was in a shared endeavour, even though it was within a sort of quasi-feudal system, yeah. you had a lot of common rights. Right. And those rights were sort of taken away pretty systematically between 1750 and 1850. Right. So this play is about the sort of latter end of that. And it feels, I'm not sure there's any specific political modern angle that I was pushing for particularly, but it feels like it's always pressing, particularly in terms of what's happened to London in the last 20 to 30 years, when less and less of it is um, public and more and more of it is private. Sure. I know comedian Mark Thomas has done a lot of um, work recently about the amount of space we're losing in London to, right. to yeah. um, sort of private endeavour. So I'm not sure there's any like, specific political button that I was trying to push, but it feels like it's something that's always relevant yeah, in terms of what is, what is communally owned and what is and what is, um, what is for the individual, I think. Sorry, yeah, that's a bit no, rambling that's, of an no, answer. That's a, Jeremy, do you have that? Well, the only thing that I'd add to, to, to that is um, that I think it's a story that has been sublimated. I think the, the whole the idea of, of who owns the land and how that came about, I suppose, is sort of for, for, for certain vested interests is, has reasonably been um, suppressed. And it struck me that um, it, Dave's approach to it would be a really interesting contribution to a bigger question. You always want to play to talk um, relevantly, and a good play will always talk relevantly to the time that it's set in. And it feels to me that that's always a great question. Who owns the land and, and how? Because it affects all of us uh, directly or, or indirectly. Yes, sure. I was just on holiday in Northern Ireland, actually, and went to the Giant's Causeway, which is owned by the National Trust and you don't actually have to pay to visit the Giant's Causeway but you can't get anywhere near it without paying hefty parking tariffs so it's sort of it, that's an interesting you'd actually have a field day with that it's very interesting <laughs> yeah. yes um, so Dave 
What was your very first spark of inspiration, the impetus for, for writing this play? And then let's have that as a sort of part A. And then, Jeremy, when did you get involved? So part A, part B. OK, yes. Yeah, so I, um, I'm from Northamptonshire. Well, I'm not from, from Northampton, which has got a sort of very long, incredibly rich history of failure. Um, <laughs> we, we, we're backed both wrong sides in civil wars, British and American. Uh, we, uh, we pissed off a king, I think, around the 12th century, and we weren't going to have the university that we would have had that Oxford Cambridge were going to have. Um, we've, our most famous sporting event is losing 8-1 to Manchester United, um, and George Best scoring six goals. So generally that sort of... have got a very fine shoe museum. Yeah, I mean, shoes is... I mean, we're clinging... And then the Americans stole that with kinky boots, so we're, oh. we've got nothing. Um, so, yeah, so essentially it gives you a sense of... Um, um, failure and the world's going to beat you, which is helpful in some ways. Anyway, <laughs> so then when you find someone who's sort of from Northampton and who's interesting, um, you sort of tend to grip onto them. So there's a guy called Alan Moore, who I'm sort of really interested by. He's a comic book writer who sort of fetishised Northampton. But the, the a, other current, a current day writer. Yeah, current day writer. Okay, he wrote, sure. he sort of revolutionised comics. Okay. And one of the people he writes about, because he's done the same thing, gripping onto people who are from Northampton, okay. is the peasant poet... Um, John Clare, right. who grew up in a village in Stamford, which brilliantly in, in classic Northamptonshire or Northampton history has now been stolen by Peterborough because it's, oh. <laughs> it's over the board. So the one guy we had, we've it's been enclosed by Peterborough. Yeah, we 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 lost it. But he um he's a sort of extraordinary story of a guy who was a, a, a labourer, and he was self-educated partly through some ties to a, a big manor house. He got a lot of books and access to stuff that most work labourers couldn't. Educated himself, became a poet, went into London and sort of got paraded as, oh my God, this guy is poor and he can write poetry. Isn't that extraordinary? And he was sort of paraded around a lot, but he never quite got the patronage he needed. And he sort of, it all went wrong and he ended up going mad and doing this sort of walk from Epping Forest to back to Northamptonshire oh, yes. slash Peterborough. And a guy called Ian Sinclair, who yeah. writes books yes. about sort of complicated yep. bits of history. He did a walk recreating that same okay. three-day walk and reading that book got me into his story. So this is quite a long answer. But, and then within that tragedy of this guy who was sort of chewed up and spat out by the system was sort of beautiful and horrific story of the fact that he had helped to enclose his own land. So he had fenced in his own village. Wow, okay. And he'd written quite eloquently about, I mean, there's a, there's a, if you buy the playtext, there's a quote at the beginning. He, you know, he saw it as sort of worse than Napoleon. Right. At the point that Napoleon was sort of crushing Europe because it had destroyed this whole old way of life. And I feel like one of the things Jeremy talked about was the, um, this isn't in our storybooks. Yes. The English story is one of winning and success right. that we forged. It's more in the sort of Celtic, sort of Welsh, Scottish and Irish, those stories have lasted, but in England it hasn't. Right. And one of the reasons is because the people who recorded it, it wasn't the words, the words were from the Coleridge's were from a very different social background. Right. So anyway, that's a long, long-winded answer way of saying that that, story of someone destroying their own way of life stuck okay. with me. However, um, John Clare is a little bit boring. Um, bless him. <laughs> he's very sweet, but he's sort of a bit crushed by the world and he's got not a great central protagonist. Right. So when I was searching around the history, I knew that he was a bit dry. So I found a lady called Mary Bateman, who had one of the, her tricks was that she would write Christ is coming on eggs, stuff them up hens. And then, oh when, and then when they laid, she'd pounce and take advantage and say Christ is coming and, and take all their stuff wow. and she was sewing uh, one of the other things you do was sew money into bed sheets 
in order to give people good charms. And she was just sewing paper into bed sheets and stealing people's money. Right. And this guy found out, so she poisoned him and she got hung. Wow. And I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I took Mary, who's the mayor of the play, really. Yes. Just, um, and then it was about finding why she was coming back. So, this, so that, those were the sort of the two germs, John Clare sure. and the egg lady. And Jeremy, when did you get involved? In I got involved um, much further down the line when, when um, David finished a draft and I read it. And um, for those of you that haven't seen it, he does something very daring with the language that is very energised and um, interesting. And, um, you know, sort of, it's a, it's a new sort of, when I, when I read it, I, I didn't, didn't know how to produce it. You could maybe argue that I still don't know how to produce it. But, um, <laughs> Wait, wait and see. But there's something really uh, interesting and challenging about the writing, uh, not least the scale of um, the intellectual ambition w within the play and the, the, the delivery. Um, so you got involved at a sort of a draft stage, did you? Like well, you yeah, I was asked to, to consider it for, um, to direct it. Right. And so David... I don't know how far down the road that had been in your process. Well, I'd Probably two or three years. Yeah, I'd done, a, I'd done an initial, initial draft where it was all in a country house, one with an old storyline, one with a contemporary. And right. Ben here uh, sort of read it and said, you're not really interested in the contemporary, you're interested in the past. Okay. And then I did a TV show for two years. So <laughs> I <laughs> came away. And then when I came back, to, I wanted to come back to, to Mother Theatre. Sure. And so it was probably... I'd written, I think, two drafts by the time Jeremy read it, so it was about a year in. So there's been two years on this one, but there was yeah. about a year and a bit before that. Yeah, so I, so I read it, and just on the strength of the ambition and the, the scale of the risk and the kind of um, the sort of horror-stroke delight of opening a new play in this space. Yes. And, um, and, and also, you know, we didn't work together, but I admired Dave's work when we were both at the Royal Court around about the same time. Okay, sure. Um, so and, you, uh, and, yeah. and I thought that it was the, the tonally, this play was such a departure from the other stuff that he'd written that I just really wanted to be yeah. involved in that sort of... Because um that face open at the same time as my play, The Empire. That's right, It was yeah. like the same... Sure. Oh, no, Alaska. Okay. Yeah. So it was around about the same time, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. same space. Yeah. So um, once you were both attached to the project, it was going ahead, what research did you both do? I mean, were there any, perhaps literal, field trips? Well, we both ended up going to the same separately, going to the same village in Kent, which is a place... Um, quite sinisterly uh, called Stelling Menace, Ooh, okay. which is, uh, remains unenclosed. So I met a lady walking a dog and she said that people had had commoners' rights until about 10 years ago and then they passed away. Okay. So it was a place that was still... But what was extraordinary about it was that most villages that you sort of assume is the natural way a village should be, with a, like a green on it, which is sort of neat and tidy. Yes. Whereas in this place, it's not. It's big and it's sprawling and they can okay. still, you can still have cattle on it. Um, and I think they still do sometimes. Sure. And the, feed, the, the atmosphere of it is the opposite of what you'd characterise a kind of village in, in the southeast of, of England. It did feel much more wild and um, available to some of the stuff that we explore sure. in the show. Um, sure. It was, it was an interesting place because you couldn't, you couldn't quite work it out immediately what was different. Right. Um, but the atmosphere was, uh, was, you know, fascinating. And it was a... It was a reach back, I suppose, in, in time. But there's a load of reading to be done. Um, and Dave had a, a reading list as, as long as your arm. But a part, of the, part of the process, I always do a kind of part of the first week of rehearsals. Um, we get a whole lot of experts in to talk to us. Okay. Because I, I think as, as theatre people, we're a bit more absorbent to that sort of being talked 
to and conversed with rather yes. than manners of, of reading. So we, had, we were really lucky. And one of the great things about, uh, one of the many great things about working at the National Theatre is that lots of people want to come and help you. So we had brilliant academics to talk to us about, um, you know, paganism and sort of that, that side of English culture yes. up until the 19th century. Um, we learned a lot about the coming of the Industrial Revolution and, and what that meant. Yes. Um, and the ins and outs of the Enclosure Acts yeah, yeah. and their effects. So sure. it was a, it's, you know, like most shows, it's like a, a very sudden education yes. for very particular reasons, almost all of which has since left my head. Okay. <laughs> um, there we now go. that I've moved on to <laughs> do that on another project. You know. Yeah, yeah. The, the best fact thing I could, it was quite lucky, most of the stuff they said chimed with what was in the play and research. But the thing that I didn't know, which was at the time, so Mary has been living in London, and at this point, London was, basically, its uh, death rate was much higher than its birth rate. Oh, gosh. So it was basically killing people. Right. And the only way it could sustain was by pulling people in from the regions. Oh, so it was sort yeah, of a constant, and that just sort of made me think about, it uh, helped me sort of focalise in the play what, yeah. what London is at this point. It's sure. sort of this vast behemoth that is just it's choking churning. up the country and sure. churning people over. So Jeremy touched on this um, just previously, but Dave, the language you've developed for this piece is, uh, and those who are yet to see it will, will have got a treat coming. It's notably rich and idiosyncratic and exuberant. For example, in the prologue, Mary, who's the central character, calls herself the sin-drowned, hollow, empty, moral, vacant product of London. So how did you go about developing this language? And did you have fun trying out all these wonderful compound words on the cat or members of your family? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I didn't write the family. And, uh, okay. But yeah, it was uh, basically I did a lot, a fair amount of research on how people would have spoken at the time. Okay. And most of it is pretty useless because um, uh, it's just impenetrable and there's no way into it. It's right. too, it's too arcane. It's too of itself. And also, village to village at this point, every place would have been completely different in terms of its slang and its words. Right. So I sort of just came to the conclusion I should just make it up. <laughs> um, and I'm a big fan of um, Deadwood. I don't know if anyone's seen that, but that's a show where, again, the guy David Milch was a show and it's an American TV show about the Wild West. And he did all this research, but it was like, actually, the language of the time yes. would be inaccessible and, and um, it wouldn't suit the, the, the way I want to make these characters come alive. Okay. So he created his own language, so which mainly involves lots of swearing, which <laughs> mine does a bit too, so I'm sorry about that if anyone's offended. <laughs> sorry. This, this, as we, we've touched upon, uh, the central figure of the drama, Mary, who's commandingly played by Anne-Marie Duff, has provoked much enthusiastic discussion amongst people who've already seen the play. So who is she exactly? What, what do, is she an early 19th century every woman? Uh, people have got such wild and wonderful theories. Do, can you shed any light on that for us? Uh, no. no. I, <laughs> I, I sort of, I don't really want to say she's one thing because sure, I, yeah. that is less interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, what what might be interesting? Can I just interrupt? Please, what please, might, please. What might be interesting to say is that I think um, it would be much less remarkable if that character was a man. And I think yes, there's something there's something point. very interesting and provocative yep. about having a roguish woman in the centre of a, a a drama. And I'm glad that you used the 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 um, the adverb commandingly about Anne Marie because she takes all of those contradictory strands of that woman and turns her into someone very real, and it is a totally titanic yeah, yeah. performance. Um, she just owns the stage. Yeah, she's a really incredible artist and human being, and when those two things are, are combined, it's very, very special. And um, yeah, it's been a total privilege to, yeah. to direct her, because you know this is a big production with a lot of people, 
and she was front and center driving us forward. So, sure. um, yeah. Now, this, it is, the play, as, we, as we've touched on, is a beautiful hymn to sort of an old mythic England, a place of music and violence and folk tales. Um, you've talked about John Clare there. Were there other sources of inspiration that, that were fed in? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, the big book that I read um, was Customs in Common by E.P. Thompson. Right. And he talks a lot about this time. And one of the big ideas that sort of jumped out at me was that, um, so you c I think we sort of think that we're constantly getting better and we're sort of getting more and more rights. Right. But there are big periods, actually, when you probably read into history, where rights just get shifted away. Okay. So, and one of the things that really struck me from his account, this book called Customs in Common, which is, I mean, it's a bit dry. It's a 700-page Marxist account of land reform, so it's a bit <laughs> hard going. But there's some beautiful stuff in it about the role of women in this period, but also the thing that interested me, I think, as much as anything, was that there was a, quite a reciprocal power balance between landed gentry and the people. So you could stand in, in the estate and burn an effigy of your lord, yes. and he couldn't do a huge amount about it, what? because you would then smash everything up and take everything away from him. Okay. And there was a reciprocal... So the way um, uh, E.P. Thompson writes about it is actually very theatrical. There was a... Um, uh, a sort of two-way power dynamic it was really interesting. But this right. period is where that dynamic goes from being a play yeah. to being a sort of tragedy, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. It's, um, and that was the big thing that really struck me as well. And again, most of, most of what I've sort of got is from books and historical period at the time. There's some very striking design and some puppetry. I mean, if you note here, there's a, just oh note yeah. the spade, the shovel, sorry, here. Just, just bear that in mind if you're watching the play for later on. Um, Jeremy... Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about the visual aesthetic of the piece? I mean, many people have, have talked about the Wicker Man, perhaps. Oh, as, yeah. Uh, just tell us about the visual aesthetic. Well, we just, I mean, there's some, a few opportunities to do some freaky pagan horror-style stuff, <laughs> which, you know, you only need to ask um, a team like ours once, that sort of question. And we grabbed it with both hands, because I suppose, design-wise, what you want to assert to the audience very early in the evening is that this isn't quite the world that they're familiar with. There's, yes. There are old ways that Dave, in the play, lots of the characters talk about the old ways, which is a sort of, um, I suppose, a, a, a series of um, edicts and laws that go all the way back to time immemorial. Um, so part, part of that l language is, is a visual one, and a wonderful uh, design team, Richard Hudson, um, doing set and costumes, just grabbed that and created quite a kind of pictorial response um, to the world of the play and also as a way of quite simply trying to solve some of the demands of the play, as sure. in the change of location yes. um, and all of that, and to constantly assert uh, the visual idea of the land and the land being sure. key. And this set, I don't know if you can see, this set is off, it's really, it's kind of, it's, it's different, it's kind of hilly and bumpy, it's really proper ground, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's genuine, it's not, yeah, there we go. It's genuinely bumpy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the Times said about this place, genuinely, <laughs> genuinely <laughs> bumpy. <Yeah. laughs> we're going to have that, that was the best review we got, so we're going to have that outside the, uh, the, the front of the theatre. What struck me when I was watching was that the impetus of most modern plays, with a few notable exceptions, is towards towns and cities. And I wondered if you saw this piece as an important corrective in that. 
Yeah, I mean, that's another one of the big, I mean, one of the, if you were arguing about what Mary is, you could represent she's the city arriving in, in, okay. in, in, um, in the country. And that divide, so one of the big things, historical truths of this period is that at the beginning of the 1900s, most people lived in the countryside and most people lived in a communal system. Yes. And by the end of it, uh, sorry, 1800s, by the end of it, most people lived in the cities. Yes. So it was sort of the death of the country as we know it, right. or the countryside as we know it. Yeah. So that was always looming pretty large, I think. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, as a corrective, I, I'm not sure. I mean, that's certainly one of the things that make it, make it attractive in that it's a story um, that it's, well, there's a lovely counterpoint to playing this story inside um, a concrete yes. room in a world city. Yeah. Um, and that seems to fit um, nicely. Sure. Um, I don't know, are you in the business of, of correcting British cultural trends? <laughs> <laughs> um, I try not to, yeah. to be honest. It's, it's, it's a precarious but position to take. But nine out of ten plays really are about towns and cities, though, aren't they? So it's always fascinating yeah. to see something that's not... I, I think there's some really good country. Aren't Molly Davis? That yeah. Barney one Norris, upstairs obviously. Yeah, yeah, I think there's, there's some really well, good Jerusalem's ones. a big one, isn't yeah, it? Well, yeah, yes, yes. The biggest of uh, sort of recent years. And he's just done another one. I know. Yeah, unstoppable. Yeah. So this, as, as you know, and as we can see, particularly this stage is a very big and a very wide stage. So what particular challenges does that entail for those who are writing for it and oh. directing on it? Uh, a sense of scale is, I think, is quite difficult to achieve. Uh, I think, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure I've... If I've conquered that as a, as a but do you have to? Is there sort of something in mind? You, some, you're going to take somebody sort of X seconds to get off or get. You, ha you so have to think about. Up, no, she can't. She's back. You there. definitely have to think. It takes. I mean, it takes a good 10, 20 seconds to get off. Yes. So exit lines are useful. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, very long exit. Lines. <laughs> <laughs> um, I sort of think. I'm, I wonder whether I should have read a bit more about sort of the Jacobean and how they did it and their, their craft, because I think they were pretty attuned to that right. quick and... But that's what, I think that's why in a lot of those plays, people run on. Okay. Say, something's happening! <laughs> because it means you've got more of an impetus to get yes, across the stage. Exactly. Um, so we've got a bit of that. Yeah, it feels to me that the, the, the challenges laid down by this space are less about scale and more about um, the sort of a particular sort of legibility of plot. Right. That feels that feels sl slightly more old-fashioned, okay. in the sense that I think it feels to me that you've got to tell the audience that you're just about to make a big turn, and then you've got to make the big turn, and okay. then you've got to tell the audience that you've, that made, you've made a big turn. <laughs> right. And for that to be legible all the way up there, is you guys can't see that. But that's a long that's a long way up. Is that particular to the Olivier? Does that apply to the Littleton? Uh, I've only done one show in the Littleton, and that was a sort of chunky bit of early 20th century writing with um, that worked. That the emotional plot was of a scale that it could it could translate. Right. But I know that a space like the Dorfman and smaller spaces and smaller playhouses, and it's not about the shape of them really. Um, you can you can get a lot further on. Um, language, character, and atmosphere. Okay. Whereas I think this space, it's probably fair to say that it's pretty unforgiving. Yeah. Right. Um, that okay. those things aren't enough. Actually, you need yeah. um, a certain amount of kind of uh, capac cylindrical capacity in order to keep the the evening move, moving forward. And and I think that's about finding a structure wherein it's no compromise to have um, a very legible. 
plot. Right. Yeah. So that, you know, the, the, the challenges of the space aside, that feels like you need that, but, and also that that plot needs to add up eventually to um, thematic concerns that are public-facing in a very direct way. I think the space is probably unforgiving of, uh, of plays that aren't in some ways public. Okay. And because um, it feels like this arena, I suppose Lasden was, was trying to, to do a, a sort of a, a 20th century version of what he imagined the Greek theatre yes, was, was doing. Yes, of course, yes. And it feels that that's, that that's, what, that's what this is. Yeah. Um, it's a difficult, I think it's a very, it's so a very it challenging. It's unforgiving, do you think, this is space? Or yeah, yeah. It, it is. I mean, certainly the, our journey from the rehearsal room up to here uh, was, su was surprising. Th there's always a jolt, I think, between rehearsal room and space. Yeah. And, and the space. I but think in it's here. It's different when you got on the stage yeah, here. Yeah, massively. Very different. And so, so what, what adjust did you have to make any sort of instant adjustments? We did a lot then? of cutting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because it felt like um, where we were majoring in the rehearsal room on atmosphere and character development and language, um, the, the audience in this space we didn't just couldn't pick that up as much right. and so we needed to cut down the space between the big turns in the story okay so sure. we had quite a kind of um quite a brutal um time of it where lots of our amazing company of actors more or less all of them made massive sacrifices of very treasured bits bits that had become the cornerstones of their characters favorite bits that actually that those those parts of the play weren't kind of feeding this sure. very hungry um, serve, story machine. Serve the kind of momentum yeah, of it. So yeah. we had to have a lot of kind of um, soulful discussion about, uh, about what to lose and how to move forward. And the company were really, really fantastic and really, yeah. Yeah. really generous uh, and unegotistical in order to make the evening... Um, Breathe uh, a bit, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was just it was a humbling experience, actually. Sure. Yeah, well, there's so much more that we could talk about. I've got lots more questions myself, but I'm sure many of you are eager to watch the actual play now. So we're going to have to wrap things up. So all that remains for me to do is to thank you very much for coming, and of course to thank our guests, DC Moore and Jeremy Herring. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.